Welcome to another edition of the Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the podcast devoted to the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. While nearly 75% of nonprofit professionals are women, less than half of the CEOs in the sector are female, and those in leadership positions are making 30% less than their male counterparts. Penny Alkins and I had a great conversation about these and other important topics facing women in the nonprofit community and topics that are equally important for their male colleagues. She shares some great advice for women at all stages of the leadership path, and I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation. Penny, thanks for joining me on your path to nonprofit leadership. Excited to talk to you about a number of topics related to the nonprofit field, but Certainly chief among them is your conference that you came back fired up. The AFP Women's Impact Summit brings lots of topics that I know are already important to you and ones that I think our listeners will particularly enjoy. Um, So thank you uh, in advance for that. But let me start uh, with the question I've asked a lot of our guests that you have been on a great nonprofit journey yourself. Why did you get into the nonprofit field? Well, I think, um, first of all, thanks for having me. And I think my journey is similar to so many of the folks that we um, interact with on a daily basis in the nonprofit world in that I didn't come straight out of college and join a nonprofit, um, but instead worked for a for-profit entity and was primarily working a lot with um, institutional um, and private investors. And around 2008, my timing was probably not the best, Um, but (laughs) I decided that I was ready for a little bit of a change and had become involved with a few nonprofits in Charlotte as a volunteer and saw that my work with investors um, was very similar to the kind of work that development professionals were doing with donors, except that the outcome was social good. Um, And so that was a very appealing kind of transition. And so I was fortunate enough to know um, Amy Tribble with Council for Children's Rights, and they happened to have an opportunity come along. And so I interviewed and was very apprehensive as to whether or not they'd be interested, um, because one of the things that I saw clearly is that folks that have been doing this are extremely talented, and it's not necessarily always easy to be a lateral move because that's right. a little bit different. Um, but she was willing to give me an opportunity and I joined her team at a time that um, she had some really great folks working there. And so I was able to learn from a diverse group of people um, and was given a lot of opportunity to try different roles out like grant writing and then working on the annual fund. And it was just a great four or five year stint of learning every aspect of development. And so um, that's kind of how I got into it. And then every opportunity since then has given me a chance to learn something new or develop a skill that I didn't already have. That's fantastic. And I, you mentioned that a lot of folks that I think listen to this podcast are, have already made the move, the, the transfer or the lateral entry as we call it. Uh, And I've seen evidence of your good financial skills, uh, perhaps gained in that earliest for-profit experience. 
did anything surprise you? In other words, you you did find value into your previous experience, I think, that you brought to the Council for Children's Rights, but what surprised you as a newcomer to a nonprofit? You know, I hope this doesn't come out um, sounding like I'm belittling, but I think there's a perception that people in for-profit know everything. <laughs> so they, yeah. come to, they sometimes come to the table um, thinking that they have the answers. And what I quickly realized is it's not the same skill set and that individuals who've dedicated their life to work in nonprofits really do have a very distinct skill set. And they also um, are juggling a lot because there's not often, they're not often as well staffed. And so I think the thing that surprised me the most was how professional nonprofits are in their own way. They're very distinct and different than for-profits, but they all um, are operating at an extremely high level with a very small amount of support. That's such a great observation. And I recall similarly leaving college, working for Special Olympics International. And I had a lot of friends and family that I think, well, isn't that nice? Kind of a pat me on the head. But there was the implied question of when are you going to get a real job? Right. And I think, as you said, it, it kind of diminished the professionalism of our sector. Now, hopefully that's changing, but I appreciate you acknowledging it because I think particularly if there are folks that um, want to leave the for-profit sector, they're well-intentioned, but I think a lot of times, as you admitted, they just think, well, it'll be a little bit easier. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but is that a bit of what you saw early on or, or that changed after you arrived? No, I think I think you're right. And I think there is definitely room for diverse backgrounds and experiences to come in and bring their skill set. I just think that to come in with the ability to see how much is already going right and how many things are are done so well and then using your skill set to augment and improve what's happening um, at an organization that you might join. That's a great mindset, and and again, good advice uh, to uh, among the the types of listeners we have uh, that are pondering this kind of move. It you also allude to, I think, the other fundamental in the nonprofit sector: the work is is equally difficult, but you have less resources to do it. And I guess that's why. And you and I have talked about this before: the importance of being almost hyper productive and efficient because otherwise you can drown in the volume of activity that comes at you as a nonprofit professional. So uh, what skills and, and tricks and tips have you found to help you as you manage the volume of your work? Well, I wish I had some great technology to share. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, I am somewhat a um, an old school. Um, I, I I utilize a paper planner. I Nothing use a lot wrong of with that. Notes. Nothing wrong with that. Um, as I've subjected quite a few people that I've worked with, um, I love a spreadsheet. Yeah. And I love to organize projects specifically um, into spreadsheets with who's responsible, when it's due, um, kind of what the content needed might be. And there's a reason I do that because the one thing that I've really tried to train myself to do is to start my day 
was something I've been putting off or procrastinating on. And at first, when I was thinking about this, um, I thought, well, gosh, that's kind of a glass half empty kind of approach to my day. But the truth is, once I've done that one thing that maybe I didn't want to do, like writing a proposal or making a difficult phone call, my the rest of my day feels downhill. And like I've already accomplished the hardest thing on my list. So it's really something that I've tried to train myself to do. Um, I think something you and a few other people might know about me is I also like to start my day very early. I like to get up around five um, and kind of plan through my my day, knock out some of those things that I can do when it's not appropriate to call someone. Yeah, exactly. But I think that that, that started um, about four years ago when I started studying for my CFRE. And it's been something that I just never stopped doing. I was getting my best study time in, in those early hours of the day. And at first I told myself, oh, it's because there's no distractions. When in reality, I just think that that's when I work best. I I am a fan of that exact mindset, Penny. And you and I have talked about it only recently. Uh, I've read a couple of books on that uh, concept of the 5 a.m. miracle or the miracle morning by Hal Elrod in particular is one that really advocates not literally getting up at five like uh, it sounds like you and I both are pondering right now or doing, but simply taking advantage of your high energy early morning distraction free zone. And so I, I think that's great advice. Uh, because I think, and I was very guilty of this and many, in I guess any professional setting, it was, I, well, I'll just stay up later and get it all done. And, and that was both exhausting and, and frankly, not as productive. And so I'm glad that you raise it and seem to be finding it to be helpful. Um, the other point I want to make is you reference <laughs> what, what, um, you know, uh, Brian Tracy, made famous by his book, uh, Eat, the, Eat That Frog, which is kind of a gross analogy, but it was what you described, getting the hardest thing done first. And I think that's fantastic because it's easy to feel productive by checking the easy things off. But it sounds like you're very, in, do, do you kind of identify that item the night before? And then thus you wake up and you know exactly what you're going to do to kind of get off to a good start? I wish I was that intentional. I think it's more the thing that wakes me up and I'm thinking, oh, it's a nagging feeling of I probably should have gotten that done yesterday um, or it's something that I need to do or it's going to become an issue. It's for me, it's more of a feeling. And um, for people that are better at planning out their their day and their week, it's something I wish I could be more intentional about for sure. Um, But it is a way of rewarding myself for procrastinating, perhaps, <laughs> is to get it done and then to pat myself on the back about it. I think it's great, and I think it's good for others to ponder, but the intentionality of, of your list, so to speak, and knocking out the hard item first. And then also, I just think that early morning is is a bonus time zone that folks could take advantage of if they're willing to kind of adjust their their sleep patterns and might find it particularly helpful. Um, well, let's move into what is, I think, the headline uh, for our conversation. And you have been, obviously, a student of issues in philanthropy overall, and certainly issues of women in philanthropy. And 
So at a high level, why was the, the Women's Impact Summit uh, attractive to you and, and you know, what were kind of at a high level? You came back excited about it. And so tell me why that conference was so important. You know, um, I, I, I am still very excited about it, and I can't help but bring it up in most of the conversations I've had in the last four or five weeks since I attended the conference. Um, I think anecdotally, you can look around nonprofits and see that it's a very female-dominated field. Right. So to look at that and then to think about who's leading fundraising and nonprofits, for that matter, you, you see that it's a male-dominated um, field. Right. And so to see that disparity from a very anecdotal level, it's just always been kind of interesting to me. Um, and I think also AFP Global has really put a lot of um, they've invested a lot of their energy and time on what they're calling IDEA, um, which is inclusion, diversity, equity and access. And it just so happened that their first focus area from a summit perspective was um issues involving women. And so when I realized that this conference was going to, uh, was coming together, it immediately became interesting to me to attend. I think what was really interesting is after I attended my, the session that I got the most out of wasn't what I thought I'd walk into it being interested in. Really? I thought I would really be interested in the gender dynamics and the disparity in income and in, um, I guess your, your level of, um, management experience or kind of your ability to lead and being a woman. But really it, I came away being very surprised by the statistics and kind of the actionable items around sexual harassment and fundraising. Wow. And, and again, admitting as a male, uh, I, I am, am certainly not as a, aware and I want to be more aware and that's why learning from you in this conversation but was it because the surprise that to the extent that sexual harassment ex exists in the the philanthropic sector was that what kind of struck you well I think for me what what was surprising is I I was seeing sexual harassment across the board in for-profits and non-profits as a employee employer issue and right. I haven't really taken the time to consider the dynamics that exist in donor and volunteer relationships with the fundraising department and with nonprofits. Because when you are um, a nonprofit professional and specifically in development, your boss is more than just the development director or the executive director or the leadership team. It's also the board of directors and your lead volunteers and to a certain extent, the dynamics that exist between you and donors. And so when they started to broaden that definition of what we need to be examining and thinking about how to protect female and male employees around that dynamic, um, I just found that really interesting. And um, maybe I was guilty of, of not being or thinking through that, but I know that it's a very real issue. Well, in, in the nature of, of development work and uh, in, in given the relationship management that we preach and teach about fundraising, but doesn't it, it, it can put, I guess, men and women in awkward positions because there's a lot of social elements, special events, uh, after hours activities. And I would guess, again, speaking from a male perspective, but for a female and you're having to cultivate a male donor um, 
it, it, I guess it could go in either direction, but is that what apparently there's a whole lot more evidence of that than many would realize? Right. And I think um, I think one of the um, articles that I'd love to share to to put um, put to share with this podcast was by Charity Village, where they talk a lot about how you could liken fundraising to being in sales. And in sales, there's the philosophy that the customer is always right. Yeah. Well, if the donor in this experience is the customer, um, we've got to really think about wh- what that means about that dynamic. And um, basically what they what the whole conference talked about is like blurring the lines of strategic intimacy. So for us, it's a job. And for them, it's maybe um, something that they're passionate about, but it's their personal life. And so it's just a different dynamic and power um, play between donors, volunteers and um, folks on the development team. Well, and and we talked about this prior to this discussion, but so what do you do about it? I mean, were there some key takeaways um, that I guess for an individual that is in the philanthropic space, particularly as a fundraiser, um, and, and I guess there's also another level of uh, action items for an organization, but do you want to touch on either of those? Yes, I think that um, there are a few um, great um, tools that AFP Global shared, and one is a training um, that allows um, both board and development staff to have a conversation about what are some of the policies that could be put in place. And it's not a one-size-fits-all model, um, but I thought a great policy example was about gift officers um, going out to meet with donors um, a lot of times that those meetings happen and they're best in the donor's home because you get to learn a lot about them, yeah. but maybe not the best place for a person to go by themselves. Now then, I can think of a dozen other reasons why it's great to tag team and go with more than one gift officer or development professional. You hear more when there's two people present. Um, you also are diversifying the relationship for the donor um, because unfortunately, we know there's a lot of turnover in development. So there's just good fundraising around having two gift officers go, but then it also provides um, a level of protection. Um, and it and it should be equitable. It should be if a man is going by himself, he should have to take somebody else with him. If a woman's going by herself, she should take someone with her. Um, so it's just a twofold kind of outcome that it's protecting the employee. Um, but it's also creating better relationships for the nonprofit. And I guess it's similar to some kind of HR policies where particularly when sensitive personnel matters are being discussed, you want to have someone else in the room. If you're having to dismiss someone, are, you're suggesting that organizations might have a similar, you can't go by yourself to a right. donor's home. Would that literally be the nature of the policy? Right, exactly. And that you would want to make it equitable for men and women. And I think that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the the strategic intimacy and the customer is always right. And when you start thinking, I mean, first of all, every gift is important and major. But when you start thinking about major donors who are giving significantly to your cause, there's also a lot of awe and respect for that individual within your organization. So having some of these policies in place and talking about, well, what do we do if we feel like um, that's not that relationship's not what it should be um, with our our cause? 
you should have the conversation with your HR and your what your plan is before something might happen because that donor is really important to your organization, but so is the person raising the money. So kind of having a plan for, for what you might do in case something untoward happens. It's probably a good way. It's a, it's a better way to operate. Well, that's a great point. And I'm guessing, and again, thinking back to organizations that I've worked with and for, um, there weren't enough discussions about these kind of scenarios. So I'm guessing you're advising organizations should talk about these types of situations, what to do when they occur or obviously in advance of something awkward happening. But I'm guessing you would agree that I don't think many organizations are being proactive in this area. I think that they're not. And I think, um, unfortunately, if you work in a small nonprofit, especially HR is not, um, necessarily always on the payroll. And so um, I think that the the training that AFP has out and that you could find elsewhere, it kind of gives you scenarios that you could sit down and have a conversation about to start to draft these policies. Because again, it's not a one size fits all um, type of um, scenario because a lot of nonprofits are just a one man shop. So it's great to say in theory, you should always be out there with somebody else, but what if that's just not possible? And so maybe your policy needs to be always meet in public. Um, it's just trying to think through what those scenarios look like for your individual nonprofit. Uh, that's a great point. And, and as you said, one size won't fit all. And But it sounds like AFP has some good resources for an organization that perhaps doesn't even know where to start. You know, exactly. they, right. They agree with the issue here. Uh, and it's one that we all need to be more sensitive to. Um, is there anything else? in that kind of policy arena, or if you were advising a newcomer to the field, what they, and I guess, again, it could be he or she, but I think it's been largely uh, females that have been the victim of this kind of uh, inappropriate behavior. I think that uh, the other tool that AFP shared with us was a male ally worksheet. And it's a great infographic that kind of shares how you can, um, as a a man, be proactive in supporting the safety of women um, in the the fundraising field. But I thought it was interesting that that the probability of being sexually harassed was uh, reported for 86% of heterosexual female females compared to heterosexual males, but looking at the same um, statistic with gay, queer, pansexual, and asexual males, it was 81% compared to heterosexual males. So still an issue um, for for other diverse populations. Does that tool that you just described, the ally tool, is there an example? What what does that advise a, a male in terms of, of simply being more sensitive to the female in these situations, or what what might be an example of that? Also, I do want to be clear, it does happen the other direction. Right. Men are the recipient of sexual harassment from female donors, so I don't want to act like that's not the case, but right. predominantly this impacts, this does not impact heterosexual males as much as it does other populations. Um, so I think 
one of their, um, they've got these ABCs of being an ally, amplify the female voice, be accountable, and challenge social norms. So I think it's being willing to have that open dialogue and conversation and hear the feedback that is sometimes probably hard to hear because you, you might not be a perpetrator of some of these things. And so it's hard for you to believe. But I think just being willing to listen and challenge those norms um, is extremely helpful in being an ally. That's a great point to make and one that I admit. In fact, I think I share with you an example where um, as a advocate for strategic networking and books around that subject, one of my uh, two recent college graduate daughters made the point to me when I was sitting there championing networking, getting out, meeting people. And she said, you know, dad, as a woman, if I took the same stance that you're uh, suggesting, um, it could put me in an awkward spot. Uh, whereas a, a male might think I'm coming on to them. And so it, it, it absolutely kind of forced me to reconsider my perspective. And as a male fundraiser, you know, admittedly, I wouldn't have to think of some of the things that you as a female fundraiser um, might have to be more sensitive to. Well, and I appreciate her um, comment to you about that because it was it was very interesting. The um, summit was opened by Kim Churches with the American Association of University Women, and she gave a lot of facts and figures. But I think one of the things that really stuck out to me was thinking about how both men and women need to be more than just mentors to other women. We really need to be their advocates and promoters when they're in the room and when they're not in the room, because we're all responsible for helping um, make leaders out of women, especially in the field of fundraising, where 70% of fundraising professionals are women and um I think it's only four out of five leadership positions are men. So one out of five are women. So that's a huge disparity. And so the more we can all do to be mentors, but also promote women. And I don't, I don't mean promote as in like actually physically give them the better jobs. I mean, talk them up. Right. Um, right. You know, she, your, your daughter Lauren's comment makes me think about the fact that Kim would say, well, you don't necessarily see women out on the golf course. Um, and having that face-to-face time with people who can be influential in your career saying, wow, have you seen the work that Patton did this week? It's so awesome. And, um, and that's probably not how those conversations really go. But I do believe that there's a lot of talk that goes on behind your back that we could be doing that's positive to help make women's um, transition to leadership um, more possible. Well, you mentioned Kim Churches, I think, had some great advice, too, didn't she, there about one, as you said, better advocating uh, for the accomplishments of of the women in our field that are absolutely there, but uh, perhaps are not getting the the appropriate promotion. And did she say other things that she would just lift up in in terms of your resume and and other ways? Again, I think maybe many of us are are not self-promoting. But she's almost saying, yes, women need to to better lift up the the skills and accomplishments they have. Right. I mean, she talked about the fact that there are five generations of women currently in the workforce, um, which when I really started sitting there, I'm like thinking and counting and 
trying to think of all the different groups that I was thinking about. But, you know, from a um, policy standpoint, the Fair Paycheck Act is something that's um, currently being, you know, hopefully passed. Um, But then from a a very like strategic standpoint within our own nonprofits, we all need to be thinking about transferable skills on resumes. Um, A lot of women, um, not all women, but a lot of women do take time out at a certain point in their career to have kids. And so maybe they slow down. Um, Maybe they take roles that are a little less demanding. Um, Or if they do take a break completely, we need to all be looking at what are the skills um, that made them successful as perhaps a stay-at-home mom that would help them get back into the workforce. But just as important, we need to also not discriminate against women who don't fit that mold and maybe don't have children. And so it's a really complex issue because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, but she definitely had a lot of advice around, you know, really looking at skills on resumes differently and then also not necessarily being so interested in what previous salaries were. Um, It's interesting to me, and she kind of opened my eyes to the fact that if women are, um, and again, this is not precise because it's different amongst all populations and ages and times you enter the workforce, but if women are making 80 cents on the dollar of a man, that's just compounded over the life of them being um, in the workforce um, especially when you start with thinking about hiring practices where you ask, what did you make in your previous role? Well, right. if you be making less um, and the hiring manager can hire you for less, well, then they're going to hire you for less. And instead, we really need to be focusing on what people's skills are and what they deserve um, and not necessarily on where they were before they came to you. It's a great point because we perpetuate the right. inequity of salary, don't we? If mm-hmm. we punish you from previous inequity. Um, it strikes me too, Penny, that the, the disproportion of um, women in leadership roles is, I bet it, it is also tied to the uh, disproportion of male or female leadership on the boards of directors. Right. So, you know, are, are male dominated boards of directors more inclined to hire a male executive director, which suggests we need to have board level education as well as staff level education. I think you're exactly right about that. And I think it's interesting. There was the, it was a a term that perhaps I should have heard of, but um, being a radical disruptor and well, maybe it isn't just as easy as we need to slowly add more women to the board, or we need to add more women of color or more men of color. Um, But really is it that we just need to say, okay, and it doesn't need to be statistical, like 25% needs to be this and 25% needs to be that. But do we need to kind of um, just stop what we're doing right now, make it more equitable across all populations, um, and then start making some decisions? Um, because at that point, you actually are getting the voice of everyone at the table. Um, yes. Maybe the longer play of trying to add that in isn't going to work. That's a great point. And something else you said, Penny, and, and I guess it, it, if you're advising a young female in this sector, um, the importance of a mentor or a champion or how would you, has that been impactful to you? You mentioned Amy Tribble early in your nonprofit career, but 
would that be among the key advice you would offer someone, a young female in, in the profession? It's funny that you asked that because I, I um, was thinking about it the other day and I thought, wow, I've been just so lucky. I've worked for really great women. Um, Amy Tribble was the first in fundraising and then Stacy Jesso. Yeah. Um, I talked a lot about the fact that having those two as my first um, mentors and advisors in fundraising, they're very different, but both very strong. And then um, I've also been lucky enough on an external point of view as having Michelle Hamilton as a mentor. Um, and she's part of the reason I've gotten so involved in AFP. And so I think about the way each of them have impacted my career and the way that they've helped me find new opportunities the right opportunities. Um, they're also the people that email me when something new happens for me to congratulate me. And so nice. it's more than a mentor. It's also a cheering squad. Um, but it's not that I just got lucky. I do think there's so much strength in the women who are leading a lot of these development departments. Um, and okay. I've been lucky enough to have those three, but I could probably name, you know, two dozen others that I know of that I would consider a mentor um, and that I look to for advice in Charlotte. You seek them out. I mean, clearly you have. You worked for some, but then it, it, the someone like Michelle, you didn't actually work for. But was that kind of the result of of your own strategic networking, so to speak? I um I was very intentional, and I asked if she would be willing to be my mentor through the AFP mentoring program. And I was fortunate that even though she's busy and she was transitioning to um, the, the symphony in a new role. Um, I was very fortunate that she said yes. And it was a great relationship. And, um, yeah, I, and I think that as Amy or Stacy or Michelle would do, um, they're always willing to sit and help man or woman. Um, but it's, it never hurts to ask someone for their advice. Um, and for, their kind of professional guidance because 99% of the time, I think people are willing to help you. That's a great point. And I think listeners in any community, um, many communities, of course, have something uh, either AFP or something like AFP. And you are wise to take advantage of those networks. And I think if appropriately and politely invited um, you often will get a positive response. I think people that have experience like to help someone who is seeking that. And so uh, I absolutely would underscore this advice to anyone, male or female, but particularly you have made the point about those that female in our, our sector that need and deserve this kind of help. Um, is there anything else, Penny? This has been fantastic. Uh, you've given advice in many directions that that uh, I guess other advice you would offer someone new to the field or considering this field along any of these topics? I mean, I think that last point of the mentoring and, and also peer, a peer network. Yes. I think that there's yes. a lot of opportunity with young professionals or new professionals. If you, if you're a lateral move in, um, there's just so much to be gained um, because we don't work for, you know, a 10,000 person corporation. Most of the time it's small. And so the network that you can form of the individuals doing like work, it's the people who you can call when you have a question. And it's also the people that are going to help you find your next opportunity. 
And I think that in this industry specifically, I think that's very important. That's fantastic. And you have been such a good advocate for, you know, professional development in all forms. Um, and that's good advice for someone that's considering this path. I guess one other question, Penny, is, and congratulations to you. You will be the new president of the AFP chapter here in the Charlotte region. Uh, are there any headlines for you as you look to 2020 and what the AFP chapter here will be focused on? I'm guessing some of the idea concepts, using that acronym again, mm -hmm. will remain on your agenda. It will. I mean, we're really trying to be intentional about every programming, every program um, as much as possible, having a lens on that. Um, right. ASP, um, Global did a great job of that in, in the most recent trainings that I went to. I also think one of the things that we'll probably bring is um, the American Association of University Women does a salary negotiation workshop that I think could be really interesting for men, women, new professionals, seasoned professionals. Um, I think that salaries and nonprofits are always under a lens um, because yep. of overhead and, um, you know, people feeling a certain way about what individuals and nonprofits should make. Um, but I think that that that'll be extremely interesting next year. We also are trying to collaborate a little bit more um, and maybe kind of incorporate some collegiate type work because the reality is for people who've been doing this as like we have, we came into this um, through a different path. But I do think that there is a lot of education happening at universities now around philanthropy, around fundraising, around nonprofits. And so to look at the fact that we have a diverse university population in Charlotte, um, AFP should be engaging with them more, too. That's fantastic. Well, I'll look forward to more conversations with you and perhaps on this podcast about what we are doing to help that kind of current collegiate crowd, uh, which I agree. I think there are an increasing number of folks that are literally looking at our profession as the profession, as opposed to, you know, a side door perhaps that we came in through. Um, Penny, grateful for your time. But before I let you go, as you know, it wouldn't be a podcast uh, without a uh, question about book recommendations. Are you reading anything good now or is there a book that you uh, lift up, particularly in this professional development and productivity space? OK, so for the book I'm reading right now, um, it's <laughs> Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. And it's actually um, it's been extremely interesting to read. But I think what's been more interesting is the number of people I've talked to about this book that have also read it who do wow. this session. And I think that there's a misconception that people who ask other people to invest in nonprofits, so fundraisers, um, are extroverts. And I actually find very anecdotally that we are introverts and that we spend a lot of our energy being extroverts. Um, yes. More, more importantly, I think um, this book is interesting because it does offer you um, the permission to sit and think and reflect without feeling like you always have to respond. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Susan Cain, I believe, wrote that. And, and you're right. It, I think a, a misconception, as you put it, about nonprofits or fundraising in particular is that you have to be a screaming kind of extrovert. 
um, to do this. And in fact, you do not. And so um, I'm guessing you found that comforting and perhaps a lot of uh, our colleagues would find that comforting too. Yeah, it's affirming. And then from an older perspective of something that I've read and participated in, and I think so many people will say they've already done it, um, but I think it's great to do with new teams is strength finders. Yes. Um, and I think back on that quite a bit. And it's actually funny, it, looping back to the beginning of our conversation, I am extremely guilty of collecting information. And there's some strength that they call it that. I've always called it procrastination. <laughs> um, but in truth, it is 100% true. I could sit and research something all day and I would never feel like I'd gotten to the end of it. Right. So that, that that's the strength and that's not something everyone does or is interested in. Um, it helps reframe kind of the things about you you wish were different are actually an asset to organizations when everybody has a diverse set of strengths. So um, I think if you're looking for some professional development or a way to host or launch a retreat with your team, um, I think it's always a good idea, even if you've already done it with another team. Great advice. And you're right. I think the whole philosophy by that book and others like it that don't beat yourself up over quote weaknesses that in fact you can turn your skills and assets into even more value uh, if you uh, work on them. And so that sounds like you would certainly agree. I do. Penny, thank you for joining me on the path and I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for listening in to another episode of the Path to Nonprofit Leadership. And I'm sure that Penny's given you some great takeaways to consider, not just for yourself, but also for your nonprofit organization as you consider policies, issues of compensation, and culture. Remember to check out the show notes associated with this episode as we've got links to many of the resources that Penny and I discussed. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with somebody else who's also on the path. Uh, if you haven't already, also consider subscribing and maybe even leaving us a review as your support helps us get these topics out to the nonprofit world. Keep up the good work at your nonprofit, and I look forward to seeing you next time on the path.